0: A board member from the Society for American Archaeology recently asked on Facebook, What are the barriers to your participation in the SAA? Why are you not a member? A number of people noted surprise by these questions, due to the ongoing issues of the SAA allowing known perpetrators to attend the conferences, allowing blatantly racist presentations, and issues of not showing greater support of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act in California. All of these issues have been discussed extensively in a number of archaeology podcasts, blogs, and on Twitter. Six years ago, the SAA came out with a statement on sexual harassment. Around that time, the Women in Archaeology hosts discussed the statement as well as current cases of sexual harassment in the field. Six years later, we are still confronting the same issues. While listening to this podcast, which originally aired in 2016, let's consider the following. What can we do better? How can we make real positive change? What do you think the society can and should do if they aim to improve their standing in the field, and to bring in new and previous members. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, episode 10. Today's panel consists of Chelsea Slotin, Emily Long, Deidre Black, Sarah Head, and Megan Thees. Today, we're discussing sexual harassment in the field of archaeology. What can we do about it? Will regulations work? and what are some recent stories that have been in the media. Let's join the conversation already in progress.
2: Hi everyone and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast. It's great to have you back with us again. My name is Chelsea Slotin and today I am joined by Megan Thees, Sarah Head, Emily Long, and Deirdre Black and we are going to be discussing sexual harassment and sexual assault in the field as it relates to archaeology. So a couple of Main points that we're going to touch on today, the National Park Service was recently outed for having some issues at the Grand Canyon uh, in responding to sexual harassment and sexual assault reports. Brian Richmond, who is at the American Museum of Natural History, or was at least, um, I think he's still there, was also accused of sexual assault and quite publicly And the follow-up for that is still happening a little bit. And then we are also going to talk about the recent panel at the SAAs regarding sexual assault and sexual harassment in the field and what to do with that. Now, Emily, Sarah, and I are on the show pretty often. But Deirdre and Emily, do you guys want to jump in with a little bit of backstory about who you are?
3: I'm Deirdre Black. I'm a 15-year CRM archaeologist, and I'm currently working for the federal government.
4: And I'm Megan Theis, and I am a second-year graduate student at Illinois State University, finishing up my master's.
2: Thanks very much, guys. Now, Megan, I believe you were a moderator on the SAA panel. Um, Do you want to talk a little bit about what started that and the discussions people were having at that panel, as well as how well attended it was, which I think is important?
4: Absolutely. Yeah, what really uh, kicked off the forum was news that came to my and Ashley's attention, my colleague Ashley Jones was a co-moderator on the forum, about this this epidemic of harassment and assault in archaeology and the fact that, or in the sciences more broadly. So what really kicked off the forum is some research that was being conducted by Catherine B.H. Clancy at the University of Illinois. Um, She and some colleagues of hers were looking into this epidemic of harassment and assault in uh, physical anthropology. And my colleague Ashley Jones and I, who were the moderators for the forum addressing sexual harassment and assault in archaeology, got news of this survey that was being conducted in uh, late 2012, and we were also informed that they had a second survey in the works to open up this investigation to the sciences at large. That this wasn't just a problem in physical anthropology. There were scientists coming forward from other fields that had read the survey results and were saying, "Hey, look into you know our field as well." And so she and her colleagues really spearheaded um, conducting a second wave of the survey to to see what the prevalence of these issues was in in the different fields of science. And so this was of interest, and um, the results were published in 2014, summer of 2014, and the results were incredibly disheartening, similarly to the first wave of the survey for physical anthropology. And so Ashley and I were just really curious as to how the national archaeology organizations were uh, handling or addressing sexual harassment and assault internally. And we found that there was really nowhere to report. There's no checks and balances, and we were very concerned and confused by this. So in particular, we wanted to get in touch with the Society for American Archaeology. And we didn't really quite know how to do, how to go about doing that. So I went and spoke with my advisor, Dr. James Skibo, who gladly went into action and put us in touch with Lynn Goldstein and uh, now Emeritus Meg Conkey. And Lynn, same day, like within a couple hours of receiving the email, called the Society for American Archaeology to speak with the president and the director to find out what exactly the organization was doing to address these issues. Within a couple days, President Jeff Ulchel uh, issued an email to membership at large to state exactly what SAA was doing to address these issues and that they were aware of the Clancy article and uh, their their actions to address these issues were threefold. First, there was a principle of respect that was under review, and I believe is still under review by the Ethics Committee. Um, it has not been published yet or decided in terms of what exactly the, the language will be, but there it, it is in the works. Um, second, SA will only sponsor field schools with a clear policy on sexual misconduct. And third, the RPA issued a clear statement on sexual harassment and assault. So this this is fantastic progress, and I mean, there's still so much that we have to do to, to safeguard our discipline. My colleague and I got in touch with the head of the Women in Archaeology Interest Group, Dr. Brenda Bowser, and she invited us out to the 2015 meetings in San Francisco uh, to speak briefly on this topic and to to say what exactly we'd like to see happen going forward in addressing these issues. And uh, Ashley and I proposed a forum to open up this discussion to membership at large, because this is a community issue. This affects all of us. And, uh, she agreed and offered for the Women in Archaeology Interest Group to sponsor the forum. So we presented that at the Women in Archaeology Interest Group meeting in 2015 and then, uh, worked over the course of the year to, to plan for the forum. The number of people, especially our panelists, which included Meg Conkey, Kristen Barnett, Don Rutecki, Justin Jennings, Maureen Myers, and I'm not sure if I already said Meg, but we had, we had six panelists. Yeah, we couldn't have asked for for a better lineup or a better response. And also Drew McGill helped to edit the questions and was kind of our our guide in all things ethics, considering all of his his background work and knowledge in that area. So we we put all that together, and we also had a call of photos for quote for photos of support, very much in line with the It's on Us campaign launched by President Obama and Joe Biden to really bring the community together and you know put put our faces to these issues and and stand together in support of change. Because I think Ashley and I. Truly believe that it's it's going to take a, a culture change within our discipline, you know, to, to truly move forward and and see these issues addressed. But I mean, I can get into that a little bit later. But that's that's really how this this came about, and it was a series of events that that led
1: to this happening. That's awesome. That's quite a bit to get done in a very short amount of time. So you guys really were on fire on that one. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> and I love Lynn Goldstein anyway, so. She, she can no, Lynn no is wrong. great. Yeah, she is. We
4: so one tree, one will shake it.
1: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> she will too. So, what kind of feedback did you guys get from this? Um, what kind of? I mean, I'm sure you got a lot of support, but what kind of like kickback did you get from this? I'm just curious.
4: Sure, we did get uh, several emails, you know, for varying reasons of just concern about what we were doing and you know how. Uh, you know they've been in archaeology for 30 years and haven't had these sorts of experiences you know and um, we had one person who came forward and actually what did they call us fainting couch feminists nice.
0: <laughs> that's a new one. Oh my gosh that's terrible
1: sorry no no it's funny keep Just laughing like, it was a t-shirt oh my
0: gosh that is a
1: t-shirt my goodness
4: and so, yeah, um, and that we should, you know, kind of watch it so that we don't put our careers on the line. You know, that was kind of the, the tone of the message. But the the line that really stuck out was that fainting couch feminists. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> now, I assume that the support outweighed the kickback.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. We did not have many. And, and like I said, we did have some emails for, for varying concerns. And I mean, it, it is a, an intense topic. It is. It's exposing a lot of things that we haven't talked about before. It's opening people up to, you know, you can't necessarily control who attends the forum. There could have been, you know, perpetrators out there. Mm -hmm. It it could potentially be a triggering environment. These are all things that, you know, Ashley and I took into consideration and did not take lightly. And um you know, this is a topic that's really close to our hearts that, you know, we uh, know people who've been through this and people that are very close to us. And it's just, it's disgusting what it can just having it happen in general and that what it can do to your life as a result.
1: Well, and, and not only your life, but your career. I mean, and that's it can the, end a career. It.
4: And that's exactly it, is that when this happens within the discipline, it's a blurring of the personal and the professional. You know, we get so much kickback in terms of, Well, why don't you let the police handle that? Why don't you report it to your school reporting system? Well, these systems are broken.
1: And we will talk about how broken those are later. Exactly. Exactly. And so but, you know,
4: although we got the kickback, we had overwhelming support. And in terms of how the the forum went, we had a room. We had enough room for 40 people. We had 75 counted at one point in the room and it was overflowing. We had people sitting up on the carpet by the panelists and lining all the aisles. You couldn't even get in. We had people come to the door who couldn't get in and they had to just move on. That's good. Yeah, no, but it, it, it was, it was just great. And, you know, we were really scared also that there'd be so many people there with very disparate views and, you know, conflicting personalities. And in the open discussion session, we only had an hour. So we were really scared that, you know, um, People might not be mindful of time because it's a very passionate you know, topic and um, you know, people might not be respectful of each other because, again, it's just such an angering situation. And so all we could do was ask that people be respectful of time and be respectful of one another. And Ashley and I were floored that people were. I think this is a conversation that has needed to happen for a really long time. And uh, now we have the opportunity and people knew that we didn't have a lot of time and People were respectful and people were mindful and it was incredible and we could not have asked for it to have gone better.
3: So the swiftness of the, of the actions and everyone's response do you think could be attributed to the feminization of the field and that women are now the majority of archaeologists?
4: Sure. Um, I, I think that definitely um, plays into it that we do have you know definitely more women but i mean this is not necessarily a, a gendered issue and that's something that i think the survey there is uh, saa has issued a task force to create a survey specific to archaeology at large not um not unlike the one created by maureen myers for the southeastern archaeological conference in fact she is on that SAA task force to develop the survey for uh membership at large and, and i mean we don't really know what the, the results will be looking at a larger sample size but i mean i don't know that i necessarily look necessarily look at the gender divide i think this is a community issue regardless and i think um especially with the the Clancy at all results i mean this is happening to to everybody regardless of gender
1: so you're seeing men who are reporting being harassed as well yes okay that's and that's an
3: important or, thing to know yes was, was there any division did you hear if they were mo- the men that were harassed were they mostly harassed by women or other men, or was that an option on the, on the you know, questionnaire?
4: You uh, that I don't think came out in the results, and I'm not sure if it was that it wasn't an option or if that it just didn't come through in the results. Um, I'm speaking specifically of the Clancy et al. article right now. In terms of uh, her results, or rather, uh, she and her colleagues' results found that men were primarily harassed and or assaulted by peers and females were primarily um, harassed and or assaulted by superiors. Interesting. Yeah. Right. So, yeah, that's that's mainly the the divide there. But, I mean, I would be very interested to to see what the, the gender division is. But, I mean, at the same time, I, I really feel that it's just a community issue, regardless of gender.
0: Um, during the open discussion, uh, were these the main topics that were coming out? Or was there a particular theme that you were seeing within the open discussion portion of the forum?
4: Um, I think the, one, some of the main themes that were coming out is uh, concern about drinking at field schools. And I know that there were some on the Twitter feed, especially that were a, a little disheartened that that uh, ended up being kind of a focal point. But some wanted dry field schools and felt like it could just, that would clear up the problem. And then others felt like that was kind of, you know, blaming the victim. Mm -hmm. And I can see both sides of the coin, and I don't think that those that were calling for dry field schools were trying to blame the victim, but I feel that um, many took away from that, that they were trying to blame the victim. Hmm. And I, I don't know, I'm still stuck myself as to whether or not that's the solution to the problem.
1: Well, I can see the victim blaming argument there, because it's almost always, you know, oh, well, she was drunk. I was like, yeah, but that doesn't mean that you can do that. So I can see... Why they were concerned about the victim blaming thing, but when you have a bunch of people drinking like that, unsupervised by people who should be supervising them, you know, right. what do they think is going to happen? So
4: right, and I mean, I think part of the argument was that it's it's an environment for learning. Yeah, why is alcohol in an environment for learning?
1: Yeah, you know, the last field school I was in, we had barbecues uh, on Fridays. And I know that it was kind of like a team building thing Um, and they never got crazy or anything, but it seems to me like alcohol has become such an integral part of archeology span to the point where there are people that actually have problems with it who work in the field. And I feel like it can be a very toxic part of the culture of archeology.
4: span I think so too, you know, uh, to to some extent. And I mean, I've, had field experiences where I was not 21. And I've had field experiences where I was 21. And um, it's very different, you know, when you're not 21. And even if you are in another country where it's technically legal, it just feels kind of, I don't know, I felt strange, but that might just be my own, you know, background or um, upbringing coming in there. Uh, But I just felt wrong. And I felt wrong being around people who were drinking, and especially because I expected, you know, a classroom environment. I remember feeling that way. Like I'm, I'm around my my teachers who were really drunk, <laughs> and it just felt kind
1: of weird, you know. Yeah, no, that's that's. I don't think you should see your teachers drunk. I don't. Uh, there's nothing wrong with seeing them drink, but I don't think you should see them drunk.
3: Mm-hmm. That's that, a personal that, that opinion. At my, <laughs> at my field school, I never saw the the professors drunk. It was just the peers.
2: Yeah. And I think that there is a a difference that's important. There's a difference between going to a field school that maybe has a barbecue on a Thursday or Friday night where alcohol is available and you can be 21, you cannot be 21, and everybody has a beer with their barbecue and if you don't want to drink, you don't have to drink and going to a field school where people are getting shit-faced.
0: Right. Mm -hmm. And I do think there is that kind of per- pervasive attitude where it's like, you're not drinking. Why aren't you? And then kind of that pushing the limits when you're, you guys are right. It's a field school. You're not exactly there to be getting wasted every single night. And I, I think that could bring out some awkwardness, uh, definitely some awkward situations. <laughs> It
1: is very awkward to be a non-drinker in a group full of drinkers, because I don't drink. Yeah. and I, I don't either. Yeah. And when you are in a group, and of course, people are friendly, they hand you a beer, and you say, thank you, I don't drink. And then you have to explain why you don't drink. And it's like, it doesn't matter why I don't drink. I don't drink. But I appreciate the offer.
4: Right. Absolutely. And I mean, it's, it's not anyone's business. But yeah, there, there are a lot of um, complicated moments, you know, when you have a, a very different worldview than someone else. And I mean, there's there's peer pressure there. And it, it just becomes very, very complicated very quickly. And you're in a very small camp with very limited people. So, you know, it's, uh, it, it's tough.
1: Uh, let's go to a break real quick. And when we come back, we will continue discussing sexual harassment and assault
0: in archaeology. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts, as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blog and podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening.
1: And we're back. And Megan, can you tell us what the takeaways were from your panel?
4: Yeah, absolutely. The, the takeaways that Ashley noted, uh, she was our scribe for the forum. We want the SAA to make a definitive statement and provide guiding resources. Safety needs to be added as an ethic. It's a human right. We need to ask SAA to provide more space, time, and resources to create a conversation with the larger community. Furthermore, we need to be proponents of professional and ethical behavior and demand compliance. Also, we're asking for the communities to support, to provide support across the discipline. Um, We need changes in education and expectations are needed at all levels, trainee to superior. So not just educating at the trainee level, like the uh, alcohol EDU programs and things like that, um, or even then an ethics class at a trainee level. We think this this needs to happen from trainee to superior. There was a large emphasis on that at the forum and the uh, open discussion section.
1: Okay, and Chelsea, you you wanted to make a point about part of the earlier discussion, especially when we're talking about alcohol.
2: Yeah, so as important as it is to talk about alcohol in field schools, and I think that we have an entire podcast on its own about not only alcoholism in field schools, but alcohol use in university departments and within CRM and at National Park Services and basically just alcohol and archaeology that alcohol is not the problem. Alcohol does lower your inhibitions and makes you willing to do things that your sober self might recognize are wrong. But for people whose drunk self don't recognize that rape is wrong, their sober self probably only recognizes that Society Society does not approve of rape, and they may not in and of themselves actually feel that rape is is wrong. There are plenty of people who will get can get absolutely schnockered and rape will never ever cross their mind. So it's not just an issue of alcohol. It is an issue of a wider cultural change that does not say, look, somebody got raped, Were they drinking? or was the perpetrator drinking? but says what sort of societal acceptance, be it actively vocalized or um, tacit, unvocalized acceptance of rape is causing this and how do we change that underlying bedrock because that is not okay.
4: Right. Right now we have a a culture of apathy in our discipline wherein it's, it's a personal problem. It's not a personal problem. When this happens within the discipline between colleagues, you're merging the personal and the professional, and it affects everybody. The quality of work goes down. Um, the ability of uh, you know someone who's experienced uh, sexual harassment or assault within the discipline um, cannot work the way that they worked before. Their career, their life has been altered. So they'll get in trouble for the quality of their work being diminished, and then the cycle of unfair treatment towards a survivor continues. How does that work? So, so this is really a community issue that needs to be addressed. It affects everybody and people will leave. People will leave the discipline because of this sort of unethical conduct. And when people leave the discipline, and this is a point that Clancy et al. made in their article, we're losing the diversity of ideas and research. So if we want our field and our discipline to continue into the future, we have to address this. It's absolutely necessary. Oh, for sure.
1: Yeah. Th- God, it's such a cocoon of an issue, really, because it's like, I don't think if you ever walked up to somebody, anybody in the field and you were like, hey, do you think it's okay for this to be happening? No one in their right mind is going to be like, yeah, do it. The problem is, is it's so, and we've talked about this before, how it's so ingrained and it's so insidious. It's just back there in the back of people's minds that they don't even think about it. It's a knee-jerk reaction to it. It's, sociologists call it rape culture. You know, you hear about it all the time. a lot of people don't really understand what that is exactly and how that feeds into casual sexism and harassment in the field and how those things will escalate into actual physical harm you know a funny joke ha ha. ha. we all laugh well i feel uncomfortable but i'm not going to say anything well now everybody sees me as a target because maybe i showed some outward sign that i was uncomfortable but didn't say anything and now things start to, to barrel roll from there. That's an extreme situation, but it's not like it doesn't happen.
3: And we have lots of studies showing that those microaggressions are what lead up to the macroaggressions. Exactly. Um in many things. So you have the little sexist joke, you have the little ha ha hee hee, and by being complicit in it and by not even either by being silent or laughing along, you give everyone the idea that you're okay with this and this is okay and it serves psychologically as a means to dehumanize the subject of the sexism or harassment to the point where it becomes more okay culturally to do the bigger you know assaults because you've dehumanized the subject of the assault by lots and lots and lots of little little harassments the death of a thousand cuts
1: right and i mean it's not just men in the field it's it's the women too because I remember on one of my last crews maybe it was two crews ago I remember having a discussion with two of the girls who were much younger and we were having a discussion about what makes someone a slut and because one of the girls was like oh so and so's a slut and I'm like is she a slut because you're mad at her you know I mean what what makes her a slut I said just because a girl wants to have more than one partner does not make her a slut and she's like oh well she just sleeps with too many people I'm like and what's your point She has as much right to sleep with with as many people as she wants to as anybody else in the world. And what it boils down to is there are certain words that we use when we dislike someone or dislike a certain activity that are acceptable, like the term slut, but in the process... You know, you're creating a a microaggression that becomes larger and larger and snowballs. And who is this person? Why are we calling her a slut? Maybe this gets back to her. Now we've damaged, you know, something has happened with her. Maybe the thing that she's getting called a slut for isn't something that she wanted to happen. And it all goes downhill from there.
0: Well, and it makes you wonder, too, then, how do we we really stop this at the beginning and in a way that is actually productive? Because, I mean, with those jokes, if you nip it in the bud right away, sometimes you get that wonderful label. Oh, gosh, she doesn't have a sense of humor. She's such a bitch or something like that. Well, how can we hold each other accountable from the get-go so that it doesn't escalate and that we don't keep perpetuating these attitudes within this culture and – I think that's like, just
4: it. Yeah. That's just it. We have to change the culture. We have to change the climate and the environment and make it a safe climate and environment for practicing archaeology. Liz Watt, I think was her name at the, at the forum, said, you know, archaeology isn't worth doing if you can't do it safely. Yeah. I am 100% behind that. That is very true. Yeah. I will say, if
3: I, as I've gotten older and, you know, gone higher up in the hierarchy, I've been more outspoken about speaking out against things as I, as I feel. It's less likely to cost me my job, yeah, or my future career. And I, su- it sucks. It sucks that, that when I was younger and I heard these things, I couldn't speak out as much as I wanted to, or risk my entire career.
1: And that's coming through the f- coming through CRM, right, you De- Coming
3: through CRM,
1: yes. Now we we need to acknowledge that this is these are not just problems that happen in inside the field field, but these things happen in academia as well. And I right. kind of feel like. I kind of feel like they're even worse in academia because I see, this is me, I see academia being this very, very tiny, tiny pool of people where, yeah, like Deidre saying, if you misstep one direction, you're done. And I don't know if that's true because I don't have to n- navigate those waters. But
3: But even and- now, sometimes, depending on who I'm talking about, I still wonder, is this going to be the one that gets me blackballed? Right yeah got right, all... and that's
4: and that's you know that's a huge issue in our discipline where we need a code of ethics with some teeth, yes
0: we
4: you know that's my my personal opinion I feel is it was we need some way to to safeguard and to hold ourselves and one another accountable
1: Megan, I'm gonna I... ask you this though, what do you think the r p a is going to do that's going to give this teeth? I mean, I'm not knocking any of these ideas or anything. I just want to know what the r p a has that the SAA's doesn't, or that the AAA's doesn't, or something like that. I mean, why are we looking to the RPA to be our policing body?
4: Well, uh, the big reason for that is uh, the principles of archaeological ethics that were developed by the SAA. It was developed by a panel. Um, Allison Wiley was on that panel, the philosopher. They developed the principles of archaeological ethics to be ceilings, to be something to be achieved or obtained, not a floor not a, a standard, a bare minimum. It's a ceiling. And they did that on purpose because it's not an enforceable code of ethics. Well, we're all, I I mean, I was taught that it was enforceable. I was taught that it was the bare minimum. It's not.
1: But what is the RPA going to do? Right. And what can the RPA do to well, enforce that's, it?
4: That's the thing. That's the thing. Um, and SAA does not have an enforceable code. RPA does. How does how does the ha-
1: RPA enforce their code? I'm I'm just I just need to know these sure, sure, things. I'm not trying to be. You know. No
4: no 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 no. And here's the problem with RPA. And these are the holes that Ashley and I were noticing when we first you know got in got into looking at this. Um, RPA is only open to those who have master's degrees. Yes. Yeah. And
1: those who elect to be held accountable for their actions. Yeah, because I don't have to be an RPA.
4: Right, and if you report somebody for bad behavior, they also have to be an RPA, have a master's degree, and have elected to be held accountable for their actions.
1: Right. So this is why I'm asking, because these things that are happening, they happen to RPAs. I'm not saying sexual harassment doesn't happen to the RPA, but like you were saying in your statistics, women typically, because we're we're dealing with this show about women, so typically women are being assaulted and harassed by their superiors. So Typically, these women are m- probably aren't RPAs. They're probably not holders of a master's degree. So, what, if anything, can the RPA do for them because they're not members? So they can't. Can they petition the RPA? And what if the person who's harassing them isn't an RPA? So, what is this doing for people who are not RPAs? How is how is the RPA going to? How, how can this have and teeth?
4: Fortunately, this is the sad thing is nothing can be done for people that are not in an RPA. And that's why this forum was so important to look into innovative and effective means of combating these issues. We have to go around the RPA. And I think uh, what Ashley and I came to the conclusion of um, personally is it's going to take a culture change. It's going to take everybody coming together as a community, standing together and saying that enough is enough. We're not going to put up with it anymore. We're going to hold ourselves and each other accountable. We'll make it such an uncomfortable place for these perpetrators to be that maybe they'll just leave or they'll more easily get caught because everyone has their eyes peeled now. Everyone is paying attention to these issues.
1: And I agree with you that people are are fed up with it because I don't think anybody here is okay with this. Um, Right. I don't mean to sound real negative, but this is going to come out kind of negative sure it's great to say yeah we're all just gonna pull together and we're just we're just gonna we're gonna blackball this guy because we know that he's a harasser he he likes to touch when he shouldn't that's if he outranks all of us or if he's the owner of the company or if he's the head of the department i you know what what are we doing how can this work And that's where I personally think we need to have something with teeth.
4: We need to have some sort of checks and balances. And I don't know how that's going to work unless we become certified. That's my personal opinion.
1: So do you, I know that we've talked about this on the show briefly, and I know they've talked about it under the CRM podcast about the RPA opening up to certify uh, non-masters archaeologists. How do we, if they were to do that, because I'd have no idea where they are on that decision. If sure. they were to do that, how do we enforce that? Like, there's no incentive for me to join the RPA. And even if you have a certification for someone without their master's, there's still no incentive for me to join the RPA. It costs me a lot of money. Um, right. And what do I get to do? I get to put a couple letters after my name, you know?
4: Well, I mean, some jobs require that you join RPA in order to, you know, have a certain position, like state archaeologists, I think are required to, to be members of RPA. So what if they made it? required for anyone who's employed as an archaeologist to be part of RPA.
1: But now you're creating one more hoop for people to jump through in order to work in the field. You see what's happening?
3: How about, lo- how about losing your SOI qualifications? Losing your what, Deidre? Your Your Secretary of the Interior qualifications. So because you- there's there's a supervisory archaeology position and uh, RPA is a quick way to get that. But there's also, you know, field archaeologists, historian, like there's lower levels of SOI qualified that are required, at least on federal level jobs.
0: Right. Well, unfortunately, with federal level jobs, if you, um, it takes a lot to be able to file against anybody who is also a fellow federal employee or has any kind of federal contract. So even if you yeah. did bring her a harassment suit against them, it is still highly unlikely they would lose that those qualifications or certification. Again, but what it's if just, they could? It's again, that would give it teeth. That would give it teeth. But again, it's another one of those. It's a it's got to be a culture change. It's got to be a okay. law change. Um, it's one of those that unfortunately it goes all the way back to Washington that at least within federal um, positions like that, it, it's incredibly difficult to actually do anything with that situation. So that's why I mean, it maybe the RPA or the SAA might be a better route to at least. Reputation-wise, if you are kicked out of the SAAs or something along those lines, perhaps reputation-wise, that would uh, give it some teeth that like, oh, well, did you know so-and-so was kicked out because of that? They may be able to retain their job, but at least their reputation.
4: Well, and that's one thing that I asked. That was one of the first things that Ashley and I looked into when we went to the SAAs in 2015. We talked to RPA. We talked to some of the higher-ups in SAA. Is there a way that we could get people kicked out? And no. No. <laughs> and they will never become a sanctioning body. It's because of that uh, they don't want to, because they've bo- they created RPAs so that they would be the sanctioning body. It puts them at risk. I mean, let's say they kick somebody out and then they sue. We might not have an SAA tomorrow if somebody sues. If a big enough fish gets in trouble and sues, SAA is gone. I think that's a valid concern, and they do have lawyers looking out for their best interests that have discussed this topic.
1: Well, I know we've discussed in a past episode about the need for certification. Like we were talking about nurses. Yeah, they go through all the schooling, but they can't practice until they pass a test to practice. Same thing with lawyers. Most professional fields have a professional certification that you have to have in order to do that job. And you you
3: have to maintain it.
1: And you have to maintain it. And as annoying as that is, it is the only way... That you could enforce something like a sexual, har- sexual harassment code, because if I don't maintain my certification or if my certification gets yanked for some reason, I can't do, I can't work. But the problem is, is you need to whatever this sanctioning body is needs to incentivize for me to join them, because, like for me as a as a prime example, I'm a shovel bomb there's no benefit for me to join the RPA. So why would I, what are they going to, what benefit am I going to get career wise by joining the RPA and shelling out money every year and maintaining my certification with them? Or if I'm just out of school, I've just graduated with my bachelor's. There's how do I convince this kid who's just spent, I don't know, 50 to $70,000 getting their degree, that now they have to pay an extra, I don't know, how much is an RPA membership every year?
3: It's about a hundred bucks.
1: So yeah, now you got to pay on top of your membership to all of these other groups, which, yeah, you probably still get a student discount for the first couple years. Now you also have to pay another hundred dollars just to be certified to work. And it gets you nothing, except if you do something wrong, you'll get punished. Yeah, you know, These are the problems we have to look at with these kind of things. And until we can fix those problems, we can't even start fixing these sexual harassment problems.
4: Um, I mean, I, I guess I look at it from a little bit of a different perspective. I mean, I think it shows that you're serious—that you know you're going to hold yourself accountable to to practicing archaeology ethically and looking at these ethics as the bare minimum, agreeing to do your best no matter what the circumstances. And that if if it comes that you're in trouble for something, you're you're going to be held accountable. I, I think that's it, it's more of a a statement, and I think. Um, employers would take you a little more seriously. I mean, I can't verify that with statistics or anything like that, but I mean, I think it, it, it's quite a statement to join the RPA.
3: I'd like to go back to the comparison with nurses. Nursing actually has a very similar uh, wage range as archeology, span especially CRM archeology. span And I think maybe going back and looking at how nurses became certified and the training for nurses and what they do to maintain it would be a good way for our industry to, well one, be taken more seriously be organized and have a way to deal with these sort of issues. I mean, it's like, because, you know, there's the associates level nurses, there's the bachelor's level nurses, there's the master's and PhD level nurses. And we have that too. And the the pay is is about the same in most of the areas I've worked. That's something that our industry is just going to have to figure out.
1: No, I I mean, we came to the conclusion that we do need some sort of certification. We do. Because like you said, it, it gets our... One of the problems our field has is no one takes us seriously. Yeah. I mean, they they really just don't. People don't take archaeology seriously. The government doesn't take us seriously. Private industry doesn't take it seriously. We're just that thing they have to do to get past Section 106. You know?
3: A lot of uh, company owners don't take us seriously. The only thing that's preventing them from hiring day workers for less than minimum wage is there's that slight requirement to have some degree behind the archaeology
0: right but with all of this and I and you guys are totally right there needs to be something with teeth but right now what is the RPA really going to do and no it doesn't seem to be like a lot of companies and government are taking it seriously but in the meantime what do you think could be the the best thing we can tell People in our field that are experiencing everything from casual sexism to outright sexual harassment, what can they do right now beyond just say saying we must hold each other accountable? What can what can we advise for them to do now? You know,
3: I believe you and I support you. Yes.
0: Yeah. I mean,
1: as. I hate to sound all like weird and all that, but as women in the field, if someone comes to you, even if it's a guy and they come to you and they say, Hey, I'm not comfortable around so-and-so then you don't need to know why. Just be like, okay, you can come dig with me this day. And if it becomes an issue, we got to stand up for each other. I mean, Deidre and I are at an age where we just don't give a shit anymore because we're that old, but, and I know it's hard for younger girls to do. I do. I understand that I've watched it happen, but I think the older women in the field, and I know there's not as many of us, but those of us who are older and and we're in the field, if someone comes up to us and says, I'm not comfortable doing something, or they act like something weird is happening, just go be the mother figure for a minute. Go be the big sister. And if the crew chief wants to come over and give her shit for something, just be like, you know what? Deal with it. You know? If we don't stand up for each other, obviously no one else is going to stand up for us, so... But that's the field. I don't know what it's like in academia. So I'd actually really love to jump
2: in there because I am in academia. Yeah, go for it. And, and share a couple of personal stories. One, going back to what you guys are saying, just like have each other's backs. But I will always remember there was a, a school I was debating applying to for my master's degree. You know, in the course of being an anthropologist, happened to run into one of the individuals who was associated with that university at an event that there was food at. And I was a broke college student, so mm. I had approximately 100 times more food on my plate than I should have. But, you know, free food.
1: <laughs> free food free food's always valid.
2: Right? <laughs> I mean, really, I can't explain to you how much food was on this place. It was like <laughs> the Leaning Tower of Pisa. I was afraid what I was going to take out of it would cause the entire stack to come tumbling down. But this individual who I was, you know, talking to because I wanted to know more about the program and what they did and whether or not it would be a good fit for me made a comment, how he liked a girl with an appetite and winked.
3: Oh. Made me
2: feel <laughs> kind of creepy. At which point, he then stated that he would be happy to take a card, remember my name, hard to forget a pretty face like you.
3: Was this a superior or just a student? If I to
2: the program, he would make sure I got in. Oh. Which was creepy. I happened to mention this to... Someone else who was there who was actually a current graduate student in that program who said, I don't have a lot of clout to change the institution, but don't come here. This particular person has a track record that the university, I don't know whether they weren't aware of it, didn't want to be aware of it. I didn't know enough about the politics, but of hitting on and attempting to sleep with both his graduate students and his undergraduate students. And you know what? I didn't apply there. I had already been made to feel uncomfortable and i had been told by a current student to to watch out and if you see prospective students and i think that there is an idea in academia that if you're talking to a prospective student you need to give them a rosy view and help your department and you know xyz but if if you see something in that, like happening in your department and you're talking to people who might come let them know. You know, if you hear from one of your colleagues that like their professor is making them feel uncomfortable, go to class with them. You know, if they have to go to that person's office hours for some reason, go with them. You know, just be there for each other, support each other. And eventually if people stop applying to programs that have really, really bad reputations for sexual harassment and inappropriate boundaries being crossed, that's affecting their bottom line. And universities, as much as they are institutions of higher learning, they are also companies. They are also, you know, trying to make money. And if somebody is doing something that hurts their bottom line, they might actually sit up and pay attention.
1: One would hope. Let's go to break real quick. And when we come back, let's shift our focus a little bit to current events.
0: Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Arche Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and arche animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening! And we are back and let's look at some
1: recent news about the wonderful world of sexual harassment. Chelsea, did you have a story for us?
2: Yeah, so so back in February of this year, a story broke that was quite disturbing to a, a large number of people. The American Museum of Natural History up in New York City uh, has a, a head curator whose name is Brian Richmond, who does human origins work. And he, it was alleged that he had sexually assaulted one of his research assistants, who at the time was directly underneath them. The research assistant and he were at a conference where she says she was uh, drinking, I believe, and woke up in his bed, unaware of what had happened. He claims it's consensual. I think it's a a story that we're all pretty used to hearing from people who are victims of sexual assault and their alleged perpetrators that, uh, you know, he said, she said, he raped me, it was consensual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This particular research assistant was talking about it fairly openly at a, a conference in St. Louis. And at that meeting, Bernard Wood, who is a paleoanthropologist at George Washington University, who knew Brian Richmond and was actually one of his mentors, heard about this alleged assault and decided to do some investigating because he actually felt responsible because he had mentored Brian Richmond and I believe had written some recommendation letters possibly. And he was very surprised when he started asking some of the women in the archaeology department, previous students of Brian Richmond, whether they were surprised by these uh, allegations. To his surprise, none of the women were surprised. And in fact, some of them had stories of their own of inappropriate or alleged inappropriate behavior on the the part of Brian Richmond because of the the findings at of @g at, at @gw they have actually removed brian richmond from his association with the Cooley forest field school in kenya and i would just to give like to give them a big thumbs up because if you have multiple allegations of sexual misconduct you should probably take those pretty seriously i don't believe that charges have ever been filed against him but the the individuals who run Kubi Fort Field School felt that it was very important to provide a safe space for students who were learning, and that if there was someone who was questionable about whether or not they would potentially harm the students, that they should not be allowed to be associated there. So following that, the American Museum of Natural History did look into the the case. Some statements were taken from both the research assistant who whose allegations kicked this all off, as well as some previous students of his who also had stories. And while the the research assistant was removed from underneath his uh, direct supervision. And as far as I can tell, is still working there. Although the most recent article I have on it is actually from February. AMNH has not pressed charges, has not fired him, does not appear to have really negatively... This doesn't appear to have really negatively affected Brian Richmond that much. And the museum doesn't seem to have taken serious measures about what to to deal with him. Brian Richmond has argued that the museum's protracted investigation, which was restarted after this story broke in February, had been unfair to him. He was very upset that he was being investigated for, for this alleged assault. As far as I can tell, he is still employed there. Just before this show started, I went and looked at the staff page at AMNH and he assisted. So I think within this case right here, we have Two excellent examples of one institution that could be for a field school, which took these allegations very seriously and decided that they were going to do whatever they could to protect their students and their participants, and another institution that kind of stuck with the more status quo, uh, good old boys
3: club response, and doesn't appear to have done much.
1: There's a lot going on there. With the
3: field school... What the field school did—that I shouldn't be surprised—but I am that some that they actually took it seriously. I am so make proud it, of them. We should make it part of the culture that that's what we expect. Yeah. You know, whereas what the what the museum did—it's it's that same old thing. There there was a teacher at my high school, and everyone—they just made sure he wasn't ever allowed to be alone with female students, as opposed as opposed to you know kicking him out for being gross. <laughs> Well, yeah it's like, okay. like I said, there's awful. a lot going
1: on there, And I'm gonna play devil's advocate because somebody has to Go for it. yeah, I know. I, I am very impressed with the field school uh, kicking him out and removing people from underneath. or did the museum remove his research students?
2: So the one research student, the the female research student who had alleged sexual misconduct was removed from under his direct supervision. She's still there, and um, was she
1: provided the by the knew, was she provided by the field school or by the museum
2: so so the 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 woman who has um, alleged sexual misconduct, I don't believe actually has any affiliation with the field school. She was simply a research assistant who happened to go to a conference with him where she alleges that sexual misconduct happened and the the article that I'm looking at, which is in Science mag, uh, which I will quite happily Um, provide a link to notes that it was only recently that she stopped having to see him in the halls all the time and that the student was, uh, or the research assistant, I'm sorry, was shocked and deeply disappointed that the museum did nothing further with, with the investigation and notes that this is the classic thing that happens when women report sexual misconduct, they go through the trauma of doing it, and then nothing happens. And they did actually get, you know, formal notarized statements from other victims who were at the field school, you know, who had to, to relive their own interactions with this individual um, and the the alleged sexual misconduct of him on that part. Fortunately, Kubi-Fora decided it was significant enough to end their association with him, but
1: AMNH did not. So here's the deal. Um and here's me playing uh, real quick the, no,
3: go for it. To, a- to answer your question um according to the article the the woman who made the allegations was the research assistant at the museum okay yes okay, okay.
1: so he- here's my thing and like i said i'm playing devil's advocate it is and you see this with the colleges too it's really hard to get rid of people who have long-standing and good research. I'm assuming he's at least good at his job. I'm going to give he, him that. He does appear to be good at his job. Not that I agree with it. But you can kind of see where the museum is going with this in that.
2: well, And the museum did... Ian Tattersall, who is the former curator of Human Origins, retired in 2010. Right. They spent... Almost four years looking for his replacement, right? Uh, because he was such an institution. So Brian Richmond has been there for the last two-ish. I'm not sure in what month he began his, you know, tenure at right. the the museum, but somewhere around two years. Oh, it, it says right here he began work in the muse at the museum in August of that year. So approaching his two-year anniversary right now.
1: Yeah, and I mean, I'm not defending it by saying this, but I'm saying the museum doesn't see a sexual harassment case. The museum sees a really valuable asset in this researcher and the hoops they had to jump through to even place him. So the museum is probably like, we don't want to go through this again. We're comfortable with the work that this man is providing. And so following up on this research assistance claims is going to cost us money. It's going to ruin our reputation if it turns out to be true. And there's no way they can keep him if it turns out that he is drugging and raping women at conferences. I don't think
2: drugging was ever alleged. I, Alcohol?
1: No, I'm sorry. If you get a girl drunk so that you can go have sex with her, that's drugging.
2: Well, I I think there is some question of whether he got her drunk or they just both happen to be drinking.
1: Yeah, anyway. I don't think it
4: matters. Taking advantage of someone when they're intoxicated <laughs>
3: Yeah, that's he where I'm that at. They were chemically yes, that altered. That him. is rape.
2: That is wrong. It's it's simply when we say drugging and raping, if he was not trying to get her drunk, I don't think applying sure. drugging is
1: appropriate. Sure. So you're that's saying that like correct. the act of having of her being drunk, he then took advantage of that. He didn't himself get her drunk.
4: Right. I don't I don't know that that has been not ascertained. I don't have evidence either way. But yeah, I mean, taking advantage of someone who's intoxicated, he took it. He took advantage because the, the drug was present. You know, the drug was in.
1: She was drunk. I suppose. I suppose the hair we're splitting here is he didn't like give her the drinks. Yes. Therefore, he himself did not drug her, but he saw her inebriated state and took advantage of it. Um,
4: as far as we know, yes, that's that's all I know of the story. Um, right.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, I'm disappointed with the museum for not doing the right thing and in investigating this. Have you guys watched oh. the hunting grounds? No.
2: If I can say really quickly, the yes. museum did actually investigate. They just didn't really do anything with it. That's my point. So so they did take take some steps that they should have taken, then didn't really do anything with it. And the, this article is quick to point out, towards the, the top of the article, that uh, Brian Richmond is best known for the co-discovery of the 1.5 million year old hominin footprints at the site of Ilarit in Kenya. And then he has co-authored at least 170 publications. Yeah. The research assistant has also been at AMNH for over a decade. Wow. um, And is widely described as hardworking and well-liked. So this is not a research assistant who's come in for six months. Gotcha. Who doesn't have connections. This is someone who is, from all intents and purposes, or, you know, what I can glean from this article, She's you know, an established it's figure well there, well connected and established at the museum.
4: Okay. Well, the point I was going to make about the the hunting ground is, um, which is about uh, campus rape, uh, campus sexual assault, and the epidemic across the country, and um, our rape culture nationally. They researched what exactly the issue is with the, the broken reporting system and, and Title IX, and it really comes down to money, right? So the, these are these are institutions. Uh, they have to to keep up appearances and they're concerned about money and loss. And I think you guys were were touching on that, but I just wanted to say that this is, this is something that's uh, more broadly explored, um, especially as it pertains to uh, the the campus rape epidemic issue.
1: Yeah. And I mean, with the, the two cases that have come out recently, that should be pretty freaking evident about how bad campus rape can be.
0: Oh, the Stanford situation.
1: I think you were neutral enough. Don't worry about that. I don't think you need to worry about being neutral. I think anytime we're talking about something horrible that's happening to people that should not be happening to people, I think it's fine for us to be upset because being upset is what gets people to pay attention. Exactly. And that's my two cents. My point is, why do we have to worry about our jobs if we come forward about being harassed or attacked on the job?
2: That's actually a great point. It is, however, a reality. I know it's reality.
1: I just don't like it. (laughs)
2: Neither do I, and I think we should change
1: it and culture change. Right, right, right.
0: Actually, two of the cases with the National Park Service that's being um, looked at. um, Oh, do you want me to go into it formally? Yes, yes. (laughs) I was just mentioning it. Well, Sarah, you bring up a really good point about why should we have to worry about our position and our jobs by reporting these horrible things that are happening. And that brings to light the, the issues that are happening at the national park service on June 14th, the full house committee on oversight and government reform looked at, or had um, a hearing with uh, director Jarvis, where they questioned him about a number of issues facing the national park service. One of them being um, the uh, claims of sexual harassment and misconduct that have been reported. But nothing has been done about. And all of those perpetrators, none of them have been fired. Wow. They get moved around or they're still in their position. And connecting to what you, you were saying, two, like two of the the claimants, one of their harassers put a claim against them saying, well, no, they were being provocative. <laughs> and guess what? Those two fired. were fired. So. By them bringing up sexual harassment, making those claims, having to relive that, they, in turn, were fired. And granted, later on, that was overturned. They did have a hearing. It was shown to be retribution. And so you can go to the um, office of the inspector general. But still, the fact that that was able to go that far...
1: Well, and how long ridiculous. did it take them to get that court, to get that uh, ruling overturned,
0: you know? Oh, a very long time. Exactly. And some of these cases are still unresolved. Um, the issues that were happening at the Grand Canyon River District, and, and for those of you not familiar with it, there, was, uh, there were cases of um, sexual harassment and uh, assault that were happening at the Grand Canyon. And the, the superintendent pretty much did nothing at the end of the day. Nothing was really done. Yes, the claims went through, but nothing was resolved and those perpetrators were still put in place. And that was pretty recent. I believe that was in the last like two years. So, I mean, I think it's showing this oversight of the National Park Service is showing that there really is such a pervasive issue, not only in academia, not only in CRM, it's showing in federal agencies. Now none of these harassment cases were specifically made by archaeologists as far as I know but I mean I personally have witnessed and experienced harassment working for um a variety of federal agencies whether it is as an archaeologist and I'm going um as a read on a wildfire to just trying to survey and working with my coworkers and I think it's really unfortunate that There is this pervasive culture of casual sexism to sexual harassment where nothing is really done, that those perpetrators can still have their jobs or they're just moved to another park. It does not create a safe environment. And I'm glad the oversight committee is looking into this, but it just it it worries me that in so many branches where archaeologists can work and, where well, anyone can work, that this can be an issue and nothing can be resolved.
1: Have any of us not been harassed pursuing our degrees or working in our field? I I know there's four of us, but has anyone not had a problem?
3: I will say when I was younger, I would have said no, but that was me in the height of my not-like-the-other-girls phase. Yeah, and... And I'm smarter now.
1: And we've and- talked about that in the field. It's that that whole. It, it goes into that hyper masculinity thing, where the women in the field feel like they have to prove themselves to be as manly or more manly than the men. Therefore, yeah. we're gonna laugh at the crude jokes, and we're gonna make jokes of our own, and you know, we're gonna participate in the culture that we perceive. So yeah, I'm not like those girls. This doesn't bother me, rah 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 rah. But gotten
3: over that. <laughs> yeah. And now I go. Every, I, I'm the queen of that's inappropriate. Yeah. Tell me why is that funny? Explain this to me. Right.
1: I don't need to tell okay. you why I don't think your rape jokes funny. You need to tell me why you do. <laughs>
3: exactly.
4: No, I, I have no problem standing up to you know my crew or you know anyone in the work environment if rape jokes are going around or if anything inappropriate's going down. Um, you know, or I'll just opt to not participate, to not laugh. And that might, you know, set me apart from the rest of the group. It might look like, you know, I'm not being a, a team player or whatever. But I mean, screw it. It's wrong. It is. For the rest of the summer, I don't care. You know.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you're going to be like that, you know, if you're going to be making inappropriate jokes and that's how you feel like that's how you need to interact and I and you don't want to interact with me because I don't think you're funny, that's fine. That's really okay with me. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm. Right, right. It does make for a lonely summer, though. And that's where I think, you know, we need to have some sort of way of communicating about these things and some bare minimum and standard for ethical conduct between colleagues, period. Exactly.
1: Yeah. All right. We are quickly coming to the end of our time. Does anybody want to share a last minute, a quick last minute thought or opinion?
2: So I would just like to say, as pervasive as this is, and certainly I think we have covered the gambit of why sexual misconduct is an issue in the field, it's not everyone. I have encountered so many wonderful men and women who are willing to go to bat, say this is wrong, Be your friend when everyone else is looking at you weird because you say, hey, that's not funny and I'm going to call you out on it. There are enough really, truly wonderful, thoughtful, caring people in this discipline, as as the case with Brian Richardson's shows and his his mentor, whose name has immediately escaped me. Bernard Wood cared when he heard these allegations and decided to investigate, expecting wholeheartedly that he would told that this was a one-off or a vindictive woman and was so shocked to find that there were no women in the department or very few women in the department who were surprised that Brian Richmond had been accused of sexual misconduct. Those those people do exist and they might not see it or or be aware, but when they're made aware, they they care and they make a difference and that like that is that is a strength, and that is you know I think that we can get beyond this and come up with effective legislation or rulings to to deal with this uh, you know pervasive problem that is unfortunately pervasive because of a few individuals. Um, and I have a lot true. of hope for this.
4: Yeah, I think the the forum was really an eye opener, and I mean you know we had no idea how that was going to go, but you know to have a room that's overflowing with you know so many varied voices and and people you know coming together to support one another and discuss innovative and effective means of going forward as a community it was just it's great and it's given me a lot of hope i mean i i have hope that we're going to come up with something that that's going to work that's going to create this very necessary culture change and i'm excited to see what happens going forward
1: okay ladies thank you so much for joining me tonight I really appreciate it. Uh, Megan, it was great having you on, and I definitely want to have you back next time you have a free moment because this discussion is not even close to being over. And Deidre, it was nice to have you back on, too. Thanks for having me. Thank you, everybody, and I'll talk to you later. Bye. Bye.